was thinking to myself over the weekend that it's been a while since we've thanked our intrepid producer, Jacob. So we oh. should probably, uh, and I don't know if we you, still have one of those. Yeah. I you know. mean, there's not just some magic fairy production that takes place like cobblers. Like there's I not think, like I a, think, a production I think, elf. I think Mike Lavoy would appreciate being called our production fairy or production elf. What do you think? Well, Maybe if you knew his in. stature, it, it the joke is real. Oh, ouch. Jeez. <laughs> You know, somewhere, somewhere, Mike Lavoy is having a good laugh with us. I mean, we're laughing at him, but he's laughing with us. Welcome to the Voyage Podcast, a show that traverses the oceans of myth and legend through the lens of Catholic theology and philosophy. Come aboard as we set sail in pursuit of the heroic life and Christian virtue with your hosts, Mike Schramm and Jacob Platty. Uh, so thanks for joining us. Thank you, everybody, for coming to listen to this next episode of the Voyage Podcast. So we're going to be talking about uh, myth, memory, and ancient wisdom. Now, originally, this was not just going to be the two of us. Do you remember we've actually recorded this once, which I know that sounds like we say that too how often. How could I forget? Yeah. yeah how right. could you forget? Very nice. You, you got to keep telling, you got to quit telling the audience how much how we, much we mess re-record up. things. <laughs> so, so no, we actually, are professionals. So it's, it. how could you forget? Um, so this was actually one of the first, this was one of the very early ones we recorded and it was actually, we had a, a guest on and um, so we had Dr. Kevin Vost who specialized in memory especially. Uh, he wrote a number of books on just um, the the nature of memory, the art of memory. And I say art purposefully um, because mm-hmm. it was very much um, what what can we as humans do to not so much like build it up as if it was like a synthetic or, or artificial thing, but that it's a part of our human nature to remember. And so it's like we're tapping into something that's already there. And so these... Um, these uh, skills or developing the uh, the house of memory is what he called it. And he wrote a number of books on it. Um, devout devout Catholic who used a lot of it to remember different things about the faith, whether it was the uh, you know the sacraments, the books of the Bible, the ecumenical councils. You could use it for anything. And yeah, it's a great it's a great thing. And he didn't he he learned it from the ancients. Yeah, right. and that's so we're going to get into that too very much. That this was something that he actually that actually predates Christianity, but well, like hey, most but, things was perfected by not just Christianity but St. Thomas Aquinas. And so a lot of what Dr. Vos did as well was how to incorporate the works of St. Thomas Aquinas or the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas with this ancient art of memory. Well, I feel like we're jumping the gun here a little bit. Yeah. I I assume you wanted to uh towards the front of this give the bad news or, or so, give a As I mentioned, dedication. originally yeah. it was an interview slash conversation with Dr. Vost and uh, it was because of the sound quality was so poor and admittedly, this was very early in our just, you know, hosting slash uh, interviewing kind of duties, you could say, that we wanted to re-record it and it was always something that was kind of got pushed to the back burner and then it was the week after... Well, it would have been your Holy Week, Orthodox Holy Week, but the week yeah. of Easter for, for the Catholic Church, um, I just stumbled across online his obituary that mm-hmm. it announced that he had very unexpectedly, and this was a shock to everybody. I mean... Because he wasn't particularly old. I so mean, wasn't he in his 60s? He was 62 maybe? is what it said. And mm-hmm. not only that, but and we didn't really get into this very much in our conversation, but um, he was actually a, a like a, a health guy too, but... Well, and, you know, it's just this episode goes out to Dr. Vost, you know, one of our, our early supporters and a, you know, real stand-up guy, stand-up Christian. And, and uh, it's too bad we we won't ever have that conversation with him, like, in public the way that we intended. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, hopefully, you know, he's listening to it somewhere. Well, <laughs> and not that not that we're particularly special in this regard, but he he genuinely enjoyed you know getting to talk with us, even though he's probably given that talk on memory a thousand times, if not more. Uh, he was great. Um, it was funny because it was the first time that we were trying to incorporate a third voice. Well, I mean, yeah. give or take the like episode zero stuff where we're talking about uh, the yeah the introduction and things with, like that yeah yeah. 
but uh you know it was the first time we we had uh you know like a stranger basically you know or a guest and trying to incorporate him into um what this what this looks like uh and it was i would say that it was it was an interesting <laughs> just to give a little bit of like behind the curtain behind the scenes stuff it was a rough draft um, on our part it was a rough draft on our part because frankly i think he was too nice of a guy like he was just so nice and uh you know I kind of have fun like throwing barbs and things like that. Well, and we, early we're on, we're so it was comfortable like, oh, with each other that we will. At yeah, each right. Other. Yeah, we can. And you know, you bring a third person into the conversation. You know, two friends, and you bring a third person who's just an acquaintance. And you know, I had to. I quickly realized I needed to adapt. <laughs> I needed to yeah. adapt what I was doing with you to like make him more comfortable because I mm. feel like uh, what I was picking up vibing from him was like. Wow, this Jacob guy's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> See, and I don't think every, he felt like I was a jerk. I think that he was just unsure how to engage with the, you know, kind of like tit for tat that we were giving each other and stuff. Yeah. And yeah. He was just sitting nicely in the corner while we like were, we, <laughs> were being we didn't, petty with each other. We didn't warn him of our brand. Is that the uh is that the language? Yeah. So. Yeah. So, um, so let's actually, yeah, because maybe I was jumping ahead a little bit. Um, so Dr. Vos, uh, it wasn't a memory technique that he, you could say he developed it, but it wasn't something that he invented by any means. This is something that not only does it go back to St. Thomas Aquinas, but it even goes back to, to the ancients, um, even before, you know, the, the pagans before the time of Christ. But it was something that, you know, the, the educated Christians would always use. They would always tap into this oh, yeah. because of how effective it was. Um, and I, I know that I think, and this even came up in our conversation with Dr. Vos, but Cicero was one of the, uh, one of those early proponents of, like I said, an educated statesman who incorporated the art of memory in his work. Uh, but also mm -hmm. it wasn't just meant to be a utilitarian thing. This was actually how you formed a person. And I know that was one of the big significant things is that this was about forming the soul. And that right. memory has an essential relationship to the soul. Or you could say the soul has an essential well, relationship to memory. But f how to form that and memory better, you're going to form your soul better. Go ahead, sorry. It's funny. No, it's funny there's like a correlation here because, uh, you know, evidently back when writing as such was uh, being introduced to cultures that were, um, you know, oral cultures, right? Uh, yeah. Oh, there's there's always like kind of pushback against it because it's like this is going to lessen our people because if you can just write stuff from, down, yeah, yeah. Instead of instead of grooming your people to have the wherewithal to just remember things, you are giving them this crutch that's going to weaken them, right? Well, As a person, and there's and, that and so story this is very personal, in the Republic, I think that that um, Plato writes down or Socrates shares in the Republic of that very thing you're describing. But so, mm -hmm. go ahead. That's probably where I'm getting it, frankly. Yeah. No, no, I'm glad you introduced that because I, I can't remember exactly where I, I'd gotten that from, but um, yeah, it was probably Plato then. Uh, but uh, probably. And it's an interesting point. It, yeah. <laughs> Everything it's comes from Plato. It's offhanded. Anyway. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you could almost say it's <laughs> I'm just going to start describing things to Plato. You could, say, you could almost say all philosophy is oh. a footnote to Plato as... Some way well, have said. That's, did you come up with said. that? You come up with that? Mike? I mean, uh, that's good. Plato that's came good up line. with it. He probably said it in anticipation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Plato, Plato <laughs> said that everything was a footnote to himself. Calling, calling yeah, his shot, basically. <laughs> Just straight up. <laughs> and I mean, no. who can deny him? Who can deny yeah. him? Right? I'm just going to start ascribing everything to Plato. And it's like, you know, just do it. Plato said that. Plato. You know, I mean, uh, I, who, yeah, how could he have not have as, said that? As, at some as point. the great philosopher, you know, just do it. Well, it's um, funny you, well, anyway, sorry. It's funny you say that because, so that obviously is the slogan for Nike and Nike is the Greek goddess of victory, which mm -hmm. is going to tie us into our origins of the, of this sort of memory method. But I want to, I don't want to cut you off. Go ahead and finish your, I don't know, meandering story. Ramble? <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. <laughs> finish my ramble. Uh, you got to stop and smell the roses, Mike. You know, so that's, this is also just something Plato said, I rose think. smelling. Yeah, also attributed to Plato. Um, you know, it's funny. I don't even remember where I was going. We're, we're like know. joking you, so you, much about this. And I actually, one of my future episode ideas was, um, I want to title it, Your Mom is a Footnote to Plato. Like, 
because <laughs> it's basically like every philosophical idea somebody you know will and again that it's because of that saying you know all philosophy is a footnote to plato and so that was kind of my i don't know snarky uh repartee mm-hmm. or whatever but no that's hilarious um, i dig it we should do that sometime yeah uh, i don't remember where i was going i i, I was it was going to be awesome it was going well, to be let great. me ask you uh, and ask all you your this. constant interjections they just mm-hmm. ruined it so i know just like yeah. every other conversation we have jacob's gonna come up with something <laughs> great but then my need for attention and then gets i get derailed and yeah. yeah um so let's actually go through some of the, so i wanted to because uh, we started talking about this, it was actually again. Oh, I do remember is... where I was going to go. Oh, oh look wait, at that. Okay, no, I remember where I was going to go now. Um, it's interesting. There's an interesting uh, relationship to our modern era, though, right? Because we all assume that reading and writing is is the bee's knees, because uh-huh. it is, right? I mean, as much as those people complained about it's uh, lessening us as people, they, they and they were probably right about that. But it was kind of like a worthwhile sacrifice to the society. They were the old good, men yelling at say. clouds when they complained about they the technology were of their of day. Writing. And you always yeah. need those. I'll never, yeah. they're almost always right. I don't care who you're talking about and I don't care what era you're talking about. Give or take slavery, because slavery is usually pretty bad, um, no matter oh what the context is. But, uh, but anyway, um, you know, what we are dealing with now is a memory problem. Because we all, you've heard this said a million times from a million different sources, we all have the memory of a goldfish. Um, Our technology has adapted us quite literally to no longer be able to like retain information very well Um, because the way we engage with computer screens or phones or any number like advertising, like the way we communicate, Mm -hmm. the books we write, the, the stories we tell are all driven by a basically commercial interest to be like for brevity, right? Now, I know yeah. brevity is a virtue in and of itself. The soul of But wit. I don't think that, yeah, that's, and, and there's a good- That wasn't there, Plato, that good, was Shakespeare. Right? <laughs> that wasn't Plato, that was no, Shakespeare. Oh, well, you know, Shakespeare stole it from Plato. Um, probably. But, uh, probably. Um, you know, and it's funny, so even Shakespeare says brevity is the soul of wit, but- no one's going to accuse Shakespeare of being, um, you know, short-winded, right? Mm-hmm. But even in his, you know, it, it's because we we evolve over time, and, and what was um, a short and and to the point of yesteryear is now, you know, three hundred words too many. It's for just us, it's, right? it's how our we, language we is slowly working towards singularity. I think is how you describe it. Language <laughs> itself. Well, is it's ironic because in nineteen. 19- this is this is literally called out in 1984 because you know part of the new speak paradigm, uh, new speak you know is the phrase they have where they're condensing language, they're removing basically all uh, extra fluous, extraneous, superfluous, extra fluous. I think is I what you're yeah, extraneous or superfluous. It's all. Good, but why not yeah. just have both? <laughs> new speak. It's new speak. It's extra fluous. So you're, um, you're... but. Uh, your description is superfluous right now, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's because it's so extraneous. But hopefully still witty. <laughs> yeah. No, extraneous, not extraneous. No, I said I know, but I'm saying you're speaking. You're speaking off the top of your head. It's extemporaneous, and that's why it's so superfluous because you just keep going on. Uh, okay. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> uh, you were talking about how important brevity was. I think. <laughs> wait, no, wait, yeah, yeah. So, but we are experiencing the same problem that our ancient ancestors were ascribing to the adoption of writing. Only mm-hmm. now it's been taken to like the nth degree. And if you consider the idea of, like, the transmission of culture to be of value, right, to, like, be important in any way, you kind Mm. of need a population that doesn't have unnecessarily hard times just simply reading what people Mm. used to say. Or remembering what they have, And that's where the memory comes in. Well, and that's the whole point point of writing. The whole point of writing— was to save us the trouble or make it much, much easier to transmit stories, transmit, mm. you know, ideas and things like that, right? Yeah. Though there is an interesting counterpoint to that where it's like as soon as things get set in stone, they actually um, diminish. That's a, probably a conversation for a different time, but um, it's an interesting line of thought because, well, like, I think basically it actually kind of it's fits not in. that. 
it ties in with our faith it traditions does because we're very much about not just the the written the the dead letter but the living voice and that's what the tradition mm-hmm. or from a catholic specifically catholic perspective the magisterium is meant to be is the living voice that isn't in place of the dead letter right because you know even though it keeps getting translated every generation every year the bible is still was still originally written you know two thousand years ago um right but so you need both of those hand in hand right those are the two stools of church authority is the or the three stool three legs of the stool excuse me three legs which is the bible tradition and then the magisterium and so like it's that living voice alongside the letter and that's kind of what you were saying is as soon as it becomes a letter it risks being just a dead letter. And so it needs that living voice alongside it. And that's where memory comes in. Well, I'm going to be a polite guest in this Catholic <laughs> household and yeah, not yeah. give too many thoughts on the magisterium. But uh, largely... It, is, uh, it wasn't for about, you anyway. So <laughs> It wasn't. It really wasn't. I just yeah. sat here politely and listened while you uh, gave that out. But um, the... Uh, no, but the idea is that yeah, once things and what I was specifically about to say was that once something gets set in stone, it is actually just one person's interpretation of that story, right? Okay. And it might not be the the best or the most holistic, or it, it's just it's the one that kind of survives, right? Now that's just something we live with. I, I'm not. I don't lose sleep over this, but that is the counter. That's the argument that I've heard made is that mm. oral traditions actually do have a a certain level of superiority because to what you were saying, they do allow for a little bit more growth or a little bit more nuance and things like that over time. But um, anyway, what happens nowadays is we no longer have the ability to engage with the past. So whatever value writing gave us, it's actually being nullified in real time because yeah, okay, there's libraries. There's a, there's a whole internet of literature, of the greatest books of all time, of the great wisdom traditions of any area of the world you want to look at. But if mm-hmm. no one reads it, then it doesn't matter, right? And I, yeah. so as a, as a parent, I try to get my kids to engage with older stuff because I, I love that maxim by C.S. Lewis. It comes from uh, his introduction to St. Athanasius, actually. But it's this really brilliant line. It's in like the, the last paragraph of his introduction where he's like, we read old books because um, it gives us a perspective that's not our current age's perspective. And there's value yeah. in that. And then he finishes with, we would read books from the future as well and get just as much value from those. They're just much harder to come by, uh, hmm. which is just a funny little joke. Well, he makes. And, but um, yeah. He never did write that time travel book. No, it's true. No, No, I I was just telling Uh, my kids the other week, this weekend about he and J.R. Tolkien had this deal that he was going to write a space travel book and then Tolkien was going to write a time travel book. And Lewis held up his end of the bargain. He wrote the space travel, the space trilogy, but we never got that time travel book from Tolkien. But uh, one of these days we're going to have time travel conversations or, or something like that. And we're going to have to raise the question of what Tolkien's time travel story would have looked like. See, and because I, I think it's I, a conversation unto itself. It's like, I think what, that is, he just, what type of a time travel story does he write? See, and I, I think just when you get to know his style so well from obviously the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, it just doesn't seem like it lends itself well to a time travel, but maybe I'm not giving Tolkien enough credit. So I don't know. It would be curious. Yeah. But, uh, so anyway, we, we were supposed to read old stuff because the transmission, it is our memory. It's our, it's our social memory. Re- the written word, we have replaced, we, we made a bargain with ourselves as a human species that we were going to replace oral transition communication with um, writing, right? And that mm-hmm. worked for thousands of years relatively well. Um, but now look at us, right? And, and what do we do now? So it's actually like we need to return to being able to remember things and communicate things in a way that our children can receive because, you know, I, I just, I'm losing the battle to get my kids to, to read, you know, Charles Dickens, right? Mm. Um, let alone my grandkids, right? So, so how do we retain culture? Yeah. 
And so that's kind of, I think, the heart of this conversation. And yeah, in one sense, it doesn't have to be entirely a lament. Like, like we both said, like we're, or well, maybe you more than me, but like, we're not the old man yelling at the cloud. It's more like, how do we see a way through? And that's actually the, the big part of this conversation is that it's called myth memory and the, the, um, preservation of culture, but the transmission of culture. And cause that's what, that's what the, the myths and memory itself was meant to do. Like it did have a purpose other than just, you know, it helps me feel good as a human that I can remember stuff. It was very much mm-hmm. like you said, it was how this culture survived as a culture. And it doesn't just mean that the humans necessarily, like that the, you know, the humans had babies and then they had babies and they had babies. It was who we are as a people. And it was very much yep. um, contextualized by the stories that those people told and the way that they made sure they were the same people is by telling the same story. Now, not exactly the same in every single detail, but that they would transmit the, you know, the bones of the story, you could say, from generation to generation. And so that's well, where, and like this I said, the, the heart memory comes in. This is what Cicero was talking about. When you, when you dropped that, Cicero was talking about how like this art of memory was important for the shaping of the soul. What he was yeah. really getting at is this idea that it's not just being able to remember. It's not memory itself that matters. Like, oh, I can recite all of pi up until like the thousandth letter, right? That's not going to improve your soul. What what you take in, it, it, St. Paul talks about this, is like when he says focus on the, the good, focus on whatever is, you know, I, I don't have that verse memorized, but he gives like 14 different like, you know, descriptors, you know, whatever is true, whatever is beautiful, whatever is, you know, uplifting, right? Yeah. Focus on these things. Um, that's inherently related to memory. It's inherently remade, related to them imprinting on you. And it, you mm-hmm. think of that language of to be imprinted upon, right? It, yeah. it means that something's been stamped into you. You've been shaped by it. And the stories we tell are basically just large-scale mnemonics, right? Did I say that word right? Yep. I, mnemonic, mnemonic. Yeah. The M is silent, right? You just say mnemonic. Is that how you say you got it? it. Yeah. Right. Mnemonic. <laughs> um, they're basically just large-scale mnemonics for the the broad categories of life that need to shape us. Um, and the the myths and legends that cultures have transmuted through their ages are their memories. Their memories of very, very valuable information that are intended to shape you in the correct way. And that's not the same thing as journalism. No. That's not the same thing as reporting the facts or, or writing down a crime scene report, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's performing a fundamentally different function than just the mere transmission of trivia. Which kind of goes into, when, when we talk about the bigger picture of something, that's where the, the concept of wisdom comes in or the distinction between knowledge and wisdom, which is, you know, if you want to just um, oversimplify the definition, but like knowledge is like knowing all the stuff, but then wisdom is knowing how it all fits together. And so mm. where memory comes in is, like you said, it's not just the minutia. It's, okay, I have to know the minutia so that I can see how it all fits together, right? Or I need to know enough of the details to know how they all fit together to give meaning to it. And this actually, you know, we've, we've kind of circled around this idea too. And uh, um, I'm going to mention Plato again. It was actually Socrates, but uh, where he talks about education itself, just being a remembering of what was already there. Now, you, one can argue that that's not like the, the best definition of or the best understanding of how education works, but it's indicative of this is the culture that he was coming from, that he and Plato mm-hmm. were, were steeped in, is this idea of, remembering something that preceded you and that you're just drawing from what was already there, right? Whether it's the ancients or a previous generation or whatever. And that's the role that memory has is that it, it preserved and not just these stories, but like I said, it's all the details that fit into the bigger story. And really this is like, this is the Iliad. This is the Odyssey. This is the Aeneid from the Latin perspective. But like those Mm -hmm. stories were told in a way that you could remember them better. Right. And that's right. where this art of memory kind of comes in too. But yeah, go. what were you going to say? Well, and so much of like Hebrew literature has a lot of like um, 
basically like it's poetry is like repetitious and things like that. Yeah. Then again, I think this is actually probably true of a lot of ancient languages as well, because it was so focused on being able, like there was a relationship between the people that used the language and heard the stories and mm. the tool of language itself. Right. I think that we've lost that in our modern society. We think that um, it doesn't matter. It's it's super utilitarian. Our use of language has become, and I say this, I'm in marketing, right? Like this is all kind of deeply personal to me because I see this in my industry and I know the spirit that drives my industry. And it is all about you know, I, all right, I'm not, I'm going to try to walk the line between not getting in trouble with, with yeah. my employers and, and just uh, laying out like a warning sign or like a red flag here. But like language has become um, just lowest common denominator because you need it to be appreciable by anyone who reads it, right? So there's no efforts to engage with language. Language, if anything, is the barrier that has to be subdued in order to convey the idea as as quickly as possible. And so language is actually something of a barrier. And so what you see, and you see this in how we communicate as such, because like nowadays we use messaging so frequently, we don't longer even use words, right? Now it's yeah. like NM instead of never mind oh, or laugh out loud. I use... Uh, and like an emoji because that's you know that's a picture which or yeah yeah heard, or now it's just pictograms I've we've heard, actually we've gone back to I've heard cave drawing, those things basically. say a thousand words so are we just using more words uh, just uh, distilled well, into no. one the answer is no we are not <laughs> <laughs> uh, we we are absolutely uh, we are we are dis, we are getting rid of language um, because it's a barrier to the immediate comprehension of whatever we immediately need someone to understand. And there's no poetry in it anymore. Um, if you treat language like it's, you're not in a relationship with it, it's mm -hmm. just some kind of... Just a tool. ...thing to get out of the way, right? Yeah. Um, your whole society suffers, and this this has a direct impact on memory because... It's language that we use to communicate, and it's language that we use to remember things. So, um, at least societally, anyway. So we've been we've we've both been very kind of abstract for like the first half. So if anybody's still with us, I want to get a little bit into some specific examples, some specific stories, uh, whether it's from pop culture or from like ancient pop culture. Um, can you think of like any movies or TV shows that really incorporated this uh, memory, like technique or memory, well? Well, yeah. I mean, the first thing that pops to my mind is Memento. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, uh, you know, Memento is a, a real trippy movie about a dude who has a brain um, a damage that causes him to lose short-term memory. And so he, he wakes up every five minutes, basically. It's been a long time since I've actually seen the movie. Well, but, like, he wakes up periodically from, like, where he's at, and he can't remember what just happened. And that's and so how the movie like, structures. And it was a very, like, the way that... like The movie plays really backwards in like time, this. basically. Yeah, yeah. it was... This was an early Christopher Nolan movie, and Christopher mm -hmm. Nolan is uh, super thematic in all of his work. And a lot of it is about time and perception and memory. Pretty much, like, yeah. all of it is. Yeah. Um, and... And uh, so Memento is one of his early early movies, and it's uh, it plays backwards because basically the whole movie is you as an audience figuring out how to remember what he cannot, and it actually has a tragic edge to it. He's trying to solve his wife's yeah. murder, by the way. So the the driving thrust of the movie is him trying to figure out the cause of this injustice that's occurred to him, even mm -hmm. though he doesn't have the mental, the memorial tools necessary to, to <laughs> work well. well um, and we as an audience follow him as he continues, but there's tragedy to it because we discover things that he immediately forgets. Yeah. And it, it's a great movie. I mean, so, go check it out, folks. And actually, it actually highlights one of the things you were just talking about, how imperfect the, when you reduce, when you, when you, and again, not that it was his fault. I mean, it hap it was tragic that it happened to him. But when you don't have that memory 
and you have to replace it with these sort of like ersatz. Like he gets the tattoos on himself with very short phrases, which you're always like, what does that yeah. phrase mean? What does that phrase mean? Or he has to take Yeah, he has Polaroids. to remember what the phrases mean. And it's like, and yeah, he has what is- to, uh, take the Polaroids and write a brief message on the Polaroid. And so it's, it's showing how inadequate um, the replacements for memory can be and how that inadequate right. replacement can, like you said, lead to a tragic sort of conclusion without giving too much of a spoiler. Well, it whatever. becomes a dead letter, right? It's a dead, yeah. like, all right, so you can write something down, but if it doesn't mean anything to you, if you don't have a personal relationship with, like, the story that letter is trying to tell you, mm-hmm. then it's just, it's just jargon, right? Yeah. And so, um, or like this photo, applies to our... Like, co- he had those those Polaroids mm. that had no context to him. And so it wasn't as helpful right. to him. And yeah, like you said, you're the viewer screaming at the TV, like, you know, because you have the context. You have the, you know, the right. wisdom, so to speak. So. Yeah, the long-term relationship with it. And just like the character in Memento and what you were trying to get at here, Mike, is if you as a culture don't have longevity of view, because no one lives long enough. No one lives 200 years right? No one lives long enough to see what the wisdom of whatever the 19th century was. It's easy for us to criticize the problems of the 19th century. We can point out all the things that don't jive with our current space and time, right? Mm. Um, but we, it's much harder for us to understand the wisdom of the past. And if we're not even trying to, because we don't have a personal relationship with the past, then forget about it. Forget about it. Uh, You're not going to... uh, It it will mean nothing to you and you will learn nothing. And you are constantly having to reinvent yourself. And that's a very stressful way. It's a very stressful way for a culture to live. Well, no, just again, like you said, if if Guy Pierce, the main character in Memento, is um, representative of an entire civilization, look at him. Look at him in that story. I mean... Even even when he feels like he's doing the right thing or doing the noble thing, he's anxious the entire mm-hmm. time. He can't have a real relationship. And, you know, as we've already alluded to, without giving spoilers, it ends in tragedy too. And so it's it's tragic. And honestly, yeah. I, I like how you bring up even when he thinks he's doing the right thing. Because yeah. there's tons of times in that movie where he thinks he's doing the right thing because in the snapshot of his view, of his perspective, the only the only context he has implies that the right thing is to like help this person right Mm -hmm. but little does he know that the person he's trying to help is actually his enemy but he just doesn't know because the the enemy is able to present in a way that looks like they need help right Mm -hmm. and he's just being a good guy and he's just trying to do the right thing but he's actually being used and as a culture if you don't have long-term cultural memory if you don't continue to transmit the wisdom that has been so hard fought across ages. Uh, you can try to be doing the right thing. You can try to be doing what just seems good to you, mm-hmm. but you don't have the context, and you end up doing truly deplorable things, right? Yeah, no, it's, I think um, that's what we do. It and it's the first example because, like you said, it was kind of the movie that put Christopher Nolan on the map. But you can find the this sort of theme of, and like you've kind of mentioned, it's it's sort of a critique of modernity in general and how. Um, because it's lost that sense of memory, how directionless and how anxious it kind of is, even though he doesn't really give so much of a like uh, solution to it, but it at least presents well, I, the problem in a very compelling way. And it's funny, honestly, he made that. I, I'm going to guess like 2002. 99. In other I words, think. this is before cell phones. 99. Oh, 99. Yeah. Wow, 99. That was a really good year for movies. Um, but American uh, Beauty too, right? Oh, so many. The Matrix. I'm telling you, 99 is one of those epochal years in movies. There's a ton of good movies in 99. I've heard the 90s uh, in general, but anyway, keep going. Eh, I was there. (laughs) But uh, Forrest Gump, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, yeah, every decade has good movies, but aggregated. You you know what? They were great, Mike. They were. (laughs) There's so many, I can't remember them. Um, But uh, sorry, it was 2000. I thought it was 99. Oh, see. My memory failed me. Technically, you were closer. Yeah, it did. Um, but uh, he wasn't... Honestly, his movie becomes prophetic 
for our culture. I don't think mm-hmm. that, I think that he, uh, you know, maybe he was, I haven't watched a whole lot of behind, behind the scenes stuff on this film. Maybe he was making a com- uh, an intentional commentary on our inability to remember, right? He might've been, but man, did he not, <laughs> little did he know, right? <laughs> like mm-hmm. if he thought it was bad in 2000, look at us in 20 years later, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like it, we are way, the, the phone, the iPhone, the smartphone has obliterated our our ability to remember things or to engage with literature or to do anything. Yeah. Text messaging. Well, we're not going to be able to get into this so much, but you're kind of drawing on the connection between memory and attention, right? Which um, that is part of, you know, going back to uh, – Dr. Vost's and St. Thomas Aquinas's and this, this art of memory, this, um, this loci method, which is very much about attention. You have to like put yourself in the story. You have to create a story that you, you as the character, you're walking through these different rooms of the house of the house of memory. And to the degree that you are attentive to each of those locations, that's how it actually works. That's how you remember whatever details you have to remember, whether it's, you Mm -hmm. know, um, I mean, it could literally be used for anything. I'll, I use it in my classroom for the different vocab words that my students have to learn for each test that, that I give them throughout the semester. And so each location is dedicated to whatever vocab word, which is correspondent to something, whether it's an idea or an event. And they have to be attentive to, okay, when I'm here, I see this. When I'm here, I see this. And yep. the idea is that you are looking at yourself and the information in the context of a story. And that's what makes, you know, like I said, that going back to the original use of, of this method or how it's been applied, um, that's what makes it effective is the attention and the, the, under, the sense of context that now you, you are in a story. You're the character walking through this house. Or um, actually, I was going to refer to the, did you ever watch the Benedict Cumberbatch Sherlock show? Uh, yeah, on I BBC? did. I haven't seen all of it. So I've seen one a lot of the of one of the actual episodes is dedicated to one of the. He's like the bad guy, and he creates a memory palace, and he will dig up dirt on people, on like famous mm-hmm. figures, and he'll use it against them, right, to blackmail them or whatever. And everybody's like, where's the hard drive? Where is he keeping all this information? How does he know all this? And the big reveal is that he's actually been keeping it in his mind the entire time in his memory palace and that he's able to, Mm -hmm. you know, extract all of these details about this bad thing that this person did or whatever, you know, controversial thing and then use it against them. And so Sherlock kind of has to like, because again, Sherlock's big thing is he can pick up details or remember details and use them to his advantage. And so it's very much a battling of the minds between these two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, people listening to this should go ahead and look up any number of conversations that Dr. Vost has about this, because he'll, he'll go into much greater detail about how these memory palaces work. But it's a fascinating and simple concept to understand that's mm. super effective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's super effective. Um, it sounded like a video super game. Super effective. <laughs> I'm in marketing. Oh. Um, but uh, all right, how about other pop culture references? Mm-hmm. Like uh, the other one that I'm going to drop is uh, "Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind." I was waiting Mind. for that because we've talked about that before. Yeah, that it came up in our conversation, Doctor Vost. Yeah. So the Jim uh, Carrey, uh, um, Scarlett. Yeah. No, is it Scarlett Johansson? No, it's no. Uh, it's not Scarlett Johansson. It's Kate it's, Winslet. Um, Kate Winslet. Kate Winslet. Yeah. yeah. Jim Carrey. Uh, this is a it? another trippy movie about. Uh, it's in the near future, but it's technically a science fiction flick, and uh, they have this way of erasing memories in the future, and so people will go and um, ta- take this service where if they have particularly traumatic events in their life or sad memories that are debilitating them they will use this service to erase those memories so they can go back to like functioning well and things like that. And Jim, Jim Carrey, Carrey has this really has a breakup. Yeah, bad breakup and he wants to erase the memory of this girl and then halfway through the process he realizes how valuable those memories are to him and the rest of the film is him trying to, in his mind, he's a character in his mind trying to save the memories of his relationship as they are kind of dissolving before his eyes. Mm. It doesn't do it justice. The description I gave doesn't do justice to just how 
weird and trippy this movie is. But it's all about being in Jim Carrey's head. So if well, that tells you anything. <laughs> um, that's like every movie of Jim Carrey. Uh, it's like being inside <laughs> of his head. It's just a different, like, yeah. it's a different uh, compartment in the memory, the house of memory. Um, no, right. what it speaks to, though, actually, what, what I was kind of picking up as you were describing it, I mean, we've both seen it before, too, but uh, is it's, again, it's the connection between memory and identity, Right. And, and really yep. to not just to Christians, even to any ancient person who understands the soul, the soul was the thing that gave you your identity. And part of that capacity or function of the soul was memory. And so he was who he was because of those. And he was scared of who am I going to be if I lose that? Right. If this mm. memory goes away, if this, mem if every memory of every uh, connection to this relationship goes away, well, who am I going to be when it's all said and done? Right. How do yep. you, you know, we can't compartmentalize the mind as much as, and I realize it's a science fiction movie, but we can't compartmentalize the mind. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, the, again, the memory thing is it's, it's not just about knowing the stuff. It's knowing how they all fit together and you aren't it's just, having a personal relationship with your past. Okay. It, it's having, it, it's having a, a living life, Right. You are not just uh, trivia. You know, your your mm -hmm. history is not just moments that happened in the past that are unrelated to who you are now. We have to be careful, I think, because you, you hear too many um, modern people, you know, really of any stripe, who go on to say, like, I don't have regrets. Without my past, I wouldn't be who I am. You know, how can I regret these decisions when these decisions are what make me who I am now? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, like, I mean, so what I want to differentiate here is on the one hand, everything is for our good and everything can be used in our repentance, in mm -hmm. our transformation, in our, in our deification, right? So that is not necessarily justification or making those bad decisions in the moments. Yeah. And regret is a great part of our repentance, right? Uh, Guilt is necessary for us to repent, but you need the memory of the bad thing you did in order to feel the guilt to begin with. Yeah. So, you know, it's not an excuse, like, you know, because I hear that too often. I, I hear too many people be like, they, they use it as a way to dismiss, you know, the things that they've done in the past instead of owning the things. Well, no, done that's the, the thing is like, it can be, it can be misused as an um, unwillingness to learn from mistakes well, the only way you learn from mm -hmm. mistakes is by, yeah, remembering them, but also remembering the, how you, how bad you felt or how it hurt others or whatever the case is. So yeah, no, it's absolutely, it has that kind of purgative, but also that illuminative, um, and unitive effect on the soul. Mm -hmm. And those, and that's just a very kind of passing reference to, um, the three stages of the spiritual life, which you'll see in I'll give you a good ancient Christian, uh, spiritual theology. Here's a good example. Star Trek. Four, the un no Star Trek Five, okay, the undiscovered country, and that one that's the one where Spock's brother Cybok shows up, and they're gonna go find God in outer space, okay, because God needs a starship, and yeah. the famous uh, what does God need with a starship? <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> watch the movie; it's great. Um, but. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but in that, what Cybok does, if anyone knows anything about Star Trek, Spock is super rational calculator incarnate, uh, and Vulcans minimize emotion, right? Cybok mm. is a Vulcan who, uh, he's like a Vulcan heretic. It's a very religiously themed movie, um, mm. but he's a Vulcan heretic who leans into emotion, and he has this way of bringing people to grips with their emotional traumas. And so he basically spends the movie developing a cult around himself as a prophet um, by giving people emotional release from all these traumas. And they like relive the memory of these traumas and, okay. then, um, and then it dissolves and then it gets removed from them kind of thing. Sounds and he like, tries kind of like to a hypnotherapy, like a, a it is. metaphor. Yeah, it's very much like that. He tries to do it to Kirk. And Kirk's like the last man standing because everyone else on his crew has like fallen under the sway of like the emotional release of this guy. But Kirk, he has this big, you know, scenery chewing moment where he's like, I need my pain. I need my memories, you know, like, mm. and 
uh, he's talking about the importance of memory. He's talking about he's he is giving voice to this thing where it's like I don't want to get rid of like the trauma that I have. Yeah. Because the trauma that I have is what makes me who I am. Um, but he he is actually kind of doing it in a way that I was just warning against because you get the sense that Kirk doesn't have regrets about like his life. But Kirk is not exactly a saint, so well, we gotta be careful as Christians about it. Well, but there's it's, value. It's, it's almost supposed to be like he's kind of like the personification of magnanimity, where it's like he has to like be so you know um, behind his his kind of decisions because he's the leader, right? And so every, nobody can see him mm-hmm. as as weak or whatever. And so it's fitting with his character, like you said, even though it's not necessarily what we would aspire to. Um, and we've already kind of done a little bit of the distinction between like, well, you can be grateful that you've learned from them, but not grateful for the pain they've caused, right? If we're talking about our sins. Yeah. And or or use it as an excuse to... To keep sinning, Lack right? repentance. Yeah. yeah, to to keep... To you say, know. oh, well, you know... Or to I just, just not I, address it, to just God, not address God just it. wants me no. to learn more, so I, gotta, I better keep sinning, right? Is that yeah. the... Just move on. Don't relive the past, right? I'm just going to move on. I'm just going to move on. Not so, the right attitude. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's one of those where yeah, like it doesn't it's not necessarily encouraging you to wallow, but that would be just like you can distort memory by neglecting it, well you can distort memory by overindulging it. And so it's not about the neglect or indulgence of memory itself because even that it's not like an unbridled good. That has to be tempered like everything else, right? Go back to our, you know, um moderate mm-hmm. moderate uh golden way of Aristotle, golden mean of Aristotle. Well, if you get into and you know Dr. Vost, he was a he was a therapist, right, by trade, mm-hmm. and so all of his relationship with memory is rooted in ther- therapy, you know, its therapeutic use. Um, and any any psychoanalyst will tell you that we need to address our memories and you know come to grips with them in a way that is helpful to us and not hurtful to us, but we can't ignore them, right? We can't repress them. Um, and what's interesting about how memory works and what's so hopeful about it and what's valuable about it, but we should understand how it works is every time you remember something, you're making a new copy of it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like you use a photocopier and if you keep photocopying the same, like the photocopy of the photocopy of the photocopy, yeah, it, it gets diminished, right? It changes. So that's one of the things about our personal memories that we need to understand is that they are always, we're always recreating the past when we remember things. But what you can do as a Christian is address the trauma of the past by looking at it from God's perspective. And then when you recreate that memory, as you bring it to your minds, you're, you're adding God to it. You're adding Christ to it in the context of his life and his, you know, providence and his relationship with you in that moment, you know, to go back to the cheesy, uh, sand, you know, footprints on the beach story. Right. I mean, for what it's worth, like all these things I remember, Lord, you know, and yeah, where were you? I felt so alone kind of thing. He's like, ah, but that was the time I was carrying you. Uh Um, I think that goes back to Plato, but, uh, my gosh, can you imagine (laughs) Uh (laughs) Giving the footprint story but, to Plato. It's like... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. No, but like what you've done is you've recontextualized uh, mm. that um, that memory now and yeah, and in the light a, of God, in the light of salvation. Not a dismissal of the, the evil or not a dismissal of the pain. And it's not a re- mm-hmm. it's not a forgetting of it. Like you said, it's, it's looking back on it. It requires the memory. Uh, okay. So the other thing too, we've been talking about a lot of uh, modern or current examples, but... This connection to memory, uh, it always has these ancient origins and not just ancient in terms of, you know, we've mentioned Cicero and how it goes back into the technical or utilitarian aspect of it, but that it has this mythological origin. And so I wanted to get into the, the goddess of memory. So there is a goddess of memory and the significant, yeah, Go believe figure. it or not, the Greeks had a god, a goddess for everything, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like. Uh, mm-hmm. Catholic and Orthodox with the saints. They they remembered, they remembered to include fittingly a goddess yeah. to memory. Uh, 
Which I mean, and I kind of said it offhandedly and jokingly, but it is kind of like the communion of saints, right? It is sort of the same role as the pantheon where, yeah, there's a, a saint for everything and there's a God or goddess for everything, you know, for better or worse, that it's a analog. No, there's a lot of sure. continuity there. I mean, I, I think that's, that's a human, that's a human thing to do. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, do you ever worry? I mean, <laughs> it's a little bit of a tangent, but would you ever worry, like, let's just say for the sake of argument, however unlikely it is that Mike S is going to become yeah, a saint, yeah. folks. Uh, are, are you worried about being pigeonholed into being like the patron saint of like sandwiches <laughs> or something like that? Like, cause you, you don't necessarily yeah, get no, to it's very much, choose what people yeah, pray to you very about, much, you know? And so I wonder how many, <laughs> what how many would worry me about that is because like, so many saints are the patron of either something they struggled with or the thing that killed them. Uh, I'd be like, okay, so what did, what, what happened with the sandwich that, yeah, made me the patron saint of it? Cause we've talked about this before, but like, you know, the patron saint of, <laughs> well, the, you the patron know. saint of, um, grillers or, or barbecuers is St. Lawrence because he was martyred by being grilled, uh, killed on a grill. And, um, the patron saint, that's I think a very ironic, that's a very saint, ironic uh, sainthood. Let no one say that the Catholic Church yeah, doesn't have a exactly. sense of humor, I guess. And uh, uh, St. Simon the Apostle, <laughs> Simon the Zealot, not Simon Peter, um, he is, he's the one, he's um, sculpted, the, the sculpture of him is that he's holding his own skin because he was skinned alive, but he's also the patron saint of wow. tanners and people who, you know, work with animal hides, so, or work with skins. So again, another kind of ironic twist with that one. If we ever do an episode on the Saw films, we'll just tether it to like early Roman martyrology. Martyr, it's mar a, martyrology. Yeah, it's a retelling. Ever say that? A, it's a yeah. it's a bloodbath. Well, no, <laughs> that's so. It actually. It, okay, so this kind of is a, just to continue the tangent. Um, I know I've mentioned Dante numerous times uh, in various aspects. So this gets into the the concept mm. of the contrapasso, which Dante integrates into his, especially Inferno and Purgatorio, and. It's supposed to highlight, you know, just like the, making the saint the patron of whatever thing killed them or the way that he or she was martyred. It's showing the victory over death right through the death itself. It's just another sort of it kind of goes back to our mm -hmm. trickster episode yeah. where it's conquering death by death. Yeah. And so it's, it's like the an church's way thing. of I, I would, mm -hmm. you know, if I'm going to be really edgy, I'm going to say it's the church's way of giving their middle finger to the to the to the devil or to death by saying, yeah, trolling, yeah, trolling exactly. the demons. So, but anyway, going back into the goddess of memory, <laughs> see what happens is I mentioned one thing. Yeah. So, so the goddess of memory uh, is Nemocene. Good conversation. And man. not only is Nemocene the goddess of memory, but with Zeus, she is the mother of the muses. And so, if you think of the muses mm. having this uh, essential role to the poets, to the artists to basically to culture makers. Uh, you have the mm -hmm. goddess of memory who kind of plays that maternal figure to all of them, right? The, the poets always invoke the muses or the artists always invoke the muses and the muses wouldn't be here if it weren't for memory. And so it's again... That's an awesome it, correlation. I actually super dig that. I I might have known that at one point, um, but I totally had forgotten it, yeah. ironically. And uh, so... Um, this idea that the mother of art it's, is memory yeah. and it just culture. speaks so yeah. well to yeah 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 art and culture is memory and it, it's just everything we've been talking about in this episode just personified um you know it's it's almost like these ancient people who created these myths uh they got a couple a, of things right they got a couple <laughs> of what things they were right. doing a lot of logos right. they the greeks had a logos you could say <laughs> yeah uh-huh you might there was say, another example though from um I know you're partial to Norse I mean we both partial to Norse mythology but there's memory in Norse mythology too that you wanted to talk about. Oh right yeah the ravens yeah yep um the uh, Odin's ravens are interesting enough I I forget their names they do have names Edgar it's, Allan it's like, Poe you that's know the name. That was the yeah name. <laughs> that's right <laughs> Nevermore one was uh, Lenore and the other was Nevermore um, isn't but An uh, is Annabeth another I, no, I can't remember uh, their I names might be thinking of something else yeah. Oh, uh, no. Uh, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Anyway, don't I get know, me sorry, distracted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, but they, you have, uh, and the na their names are actually just like the Norse language for memory and thought. And so I just can't remember what those Norse words are. 
but uh, his ravens would go and like fly around um, the world and bring him memory mm. and thought, right? And and so there's something interesting about how that relates to Odin and how it would kind of correlate. If you with think what's of Odin as with, the All Father uh, and the kind of symbol on. for wisdom, like he's the wisdom figure too. And so having his like, the pet ravens, figure. if you know, you want me to be glib about it, like that, it definitely makes sense that he would have something to do with memory too. No, absolutely. Well, I mean, so much of basically, uh, we'll just say consciousness, right, is tethered to Odin within, you know, uh, it seems to me anyway that a lot of the Norse gods are, you know, like Thor is like the strong one, right? Loki's the mischievous one. Um, they're, they're a little bit more one note. Whereas Odin, and I say, I mean, honestly, even across like many pantheons, Odin might be one of the most interesting mm. figures because he is so much more elastic than a lot of other gods are. Don't get me wrong. A lot of, you know, in the Greek culture, their gods, they actually did have a lot of kind of like, you know, elasticity too kind of thing. You know, you, you have this idea that Diana is the goddess of virgins and motherhood oh, and yeah. hunting. You know, like, yeah, it, it, it's... um. It, you know, it, it's like hunting, motherhood, and virginity. You know, we all, you know, all prayers being directed mm. to the same person, you know? Um, and then other, you know, there's other stuff too, you know, I'm sure. So, like, it's true that there's elasticity, but Odin kind of takes the cake. But, uh, you know, I guess for the purposes of this conversation, you know, yeah, he's definitely, it's one of his um, really iconic realities, though, is yeah. these ravens that go out there and, like, bring him knowledge and wisdom. And if you are personifying your culture in a figure like that, um, it makes sense that central to that figure's tools, mm. right, would be things related to um, memory yeah, that and it's thought. Like, it's essential. So. Like you said, um, Odin is always kind of pictured with, yeah, like the raven in some capacity. Part of what I was ranting about earlier in this conversation is just how much language mm. matters to memory. There's so much language matters to culture, right? I think that uh, we're so close to language that we don't, we we ignore it. We don't realize kind of like what a pivotal role it plays in our like reality as such. Um, and if you start talking about memory, uh, my mind almost automatically starts talking mm. about language. Um, it's almost like they're synonymous with each other. If you associate thoughts with language, which... There's pros and cons to that, but in a lot of ways, most of what we consider thought is us kind of thinking language, like mm -hmm. thinking words to ourselves, right? Um, if you consider thought to be just a synonym for language, then when you look at Odin's ravens as thought and memory, it's almost like you're saying like language mm. and memory, right? Um, so they're very tethered to each other. Frankly, one of the other big things about Odin is that he learned to read runes. He so learned to read. There's that kind of techne part, right? Right. It's like he, he hung on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all like we could probably have, at some point we'll have a conversation about Odin, right? And when we do that, there'll probably be a lot of thematic similarities to this conversation because Maybe there's we'll so do much a, there. It'll be a crossover but, of the Netflix series Wednesday, and then we'll also talk about Odin. That'll be the that's the clever <laughs> crossover that nobody's thought to do yet. Ah, I'm on I'm on the fence I about seen Wednesday. It, to be honest. The I TV just, show. Just trying to be. Yeah. Just trying to be. Funny. I've seen. I watched the first episode um, of it. Mm, so trying, keep trying. So, um, so, Hey, no, but hey, let's not, I wanted to finish really quickly that, um, you know, the, the Tower of Babel, like, what gets undone at Babel gets um, healed at Pentecost, right? And so I didn't want to leave on a note that conversation with the idea that Christianity is anti-culture, right? Because the implication of what I was saying is that the Tower of Babel represents, like, human culture, uh, for nefarious ends, but nevertheless, human culture, and that God intervenes and kind of like destroys oh, yeah. that culture. No, right? the, destroys the ability to create culture. To the he doesn't leave it there, than, though. Yeah, Christ comes in, unpacking. Yeah, and he comes and heals all that, and and so now you at Pentecost, you have the idea that there's going to be the a new covenant, a new the, culture, yeah, a reintegration, and a new a new empire, not yeah. of this world, right? Because it's it's a kingdom not of this world. So, you know, Christians, now this politically gets kind of messy throughout human yeah. history, right? 
because in, you know you start to get into imperial games with Christian emperors and things like that, and I mean that's a long conversation. But R.I.P. Charlemagne. Nevertheless, is that what you're you know, we're pro empire yeah, leading to. Uh. <laughs> you know, I can't help but love Charlemagne. He's too cool of a historical figure, even though he really <laughs> hated the Greeks. <laughs> he was. I have a lot of bones yeah. to pick with Charlemagne's decisions, but I, know, I shouldn't uh, have brought that up in the last uh, last little section. So, <laughs> no, I think I think this definitely deserves a, a con- continued conversation. Jacob, you wanted to talk more about um, some other examples. I, I hear that you you have an entire sixty minute total recall where it's just you talking about it the whole time. So maybe we'll have maybe we'll have that be our, <laughs> our next one. But we definitely got into a lot uh, yeah. of the at some point the we'll talk total recall. Yeah, I just want to thank you for for coming on and and uh, um, participating in this good conversation about memory. And, and like I said, the the main motivation of us doing this too was just to remember um, our our first guest and. S- a guy who contributed so much to not just memory, but to just the building up of the church and the faith and was a, you know, uh, uh, servant of servant of the church, servant of God. I mean, in the, the best way possible, the best way that he could live too. And, yeah. And so that was, again, going back kind of full circle to the first part of this episode and, and, this is very fitting. In the Orthodox tradition, what we say um, when we're remembering the dead, the departed, is memory wow. eternal. And so how, how appropriate, um, you know, memory eternal, Dr. Boast, um, may you always be remembered. Thanks for listening to Voyage Podcasts. The Voyage Podcast is a production of Voyage Comics and Publishing, which seeks to create exceptional entertainment informed by Catholic values that inspire people to live a heroic life. Voyage Comics seeks to advance truth and beauty found in powerful stories. To learn more, visit voyagecomics.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 